Hi, welcome to That's What I Call Marketing. I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and this is the podcast where you're going to hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. Today, I am joined by the incredible Debbie Millman. Debbie was president of design and chief marketing officer at Sterling Brands for over 20 years, where she worked with over 200 of the world's largest brands. She worked on amazing design projects, including the famous Tropicana design, you know, the good one, the redesign of the Burger King logo, merchandising for Star Wars, and positioning and branding for the No More movement. I could spend an hour talking you through Debbie's accolades, but in short, she's been named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company, and one of the most influential designers by Graphic Design USA. Debbie is an author, educator, strategist, and host of the podcast Design Matters, which is the first and longest running podcast about design. And Debbie has interviewed over 500 design luminaries and cultural commentators on her podcast. So today I get to find out more about Debbie, her path to becoming one of the best known and most highly regarded designers. It wasn't an easy path. And along the way, as we chat about today, Debbie Debbie had some challenging times. And we talk about how many of those became so formative for Debbie in her work. We talk about her role as an educator and how she is looking to make design a force for good in this world. And of course, we talk about Debbie's new book, her seventh, Why Design Matters. Debbie, thanks so much for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Great to to have you here. Thank you, Connor. It's great to be here. (laughs) Really appreciate it. so much to talk about and we don't have uh, probably as much time as we would need to get to get through everything but I'd love to try to get through as much as much as I can uh, with you kind of as I was I was kind of looking into your your background and, and reading reading more about you creativity did seem to play a, a large part of your your childhood I read kind of when you were you were eight you draw this very kind of descriptive <laughs> drawing of New York and do you know what I was wondering though with that did you did you know, did you recognize it as creativity or is it just kind of drawing? I, you know, because I don't know if we sometimes know that that's what, that's what it is. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think I was conscious of it being a creative act. I just felt that this was what it meant to live, I think. Part of being alive was drawing and playing and making things and imagining things and... I don't think I categorized things enough yeah. yet at the point to say, well, I was consciously, you know, developing an art practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I see it like I, you know, I, I see it like with my kids, you know, I have a 12 year old, I'm saying a nine year old, some background noise from him uh, and a six year old, but I, I do see them kind of fascinated with, with drawing and, and, you know, with making things and art. And and then I wonder sometimes, do we encourage enough in kids? Like, do we actually, nowadays, do we do we actively encourage that? Because, you know, I think it's a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Um, so, you know, definitely think we need to, we need to encourage that more. And I think, you know, I often hear like in schools, we, we learn how to draw within, inside the lines. Yeah, I think that we are all born with the ability to imagine and dream and express that with our creativity. And then over the years of more institutionalized education, it sort of gets pushed out of us. Yeah. Uh, and, and I find that really sad. You know, I'm, I'm very much a Linda Berry fan and I know that, She's very much a believer that 
not only are all people creative, but that we can reignite our creativity as adults if we want to. Mm. I think so many people are so afraid of being judged or being embarrassed or not being good enough. And, and I find that really heartbreaking because creativity should be something innate and, yeah. and something we have to do, sort of like eating and sleeping. Yes. And I, I think, yeah, as you get older, you, you, you are more conscious and, and even children as they grow, get more conscious. But you just like, as you said that, you know, we did a thing in, in work where we all kind of a team event. Right. And it was and it was pa- a painting thing. And it was amazing how how conscious people were about it and were they good. And when it was compared to somebody, oh, look, yours is amazing. And, you know, in some ways I was like, actually, I didn't really care because like, I, <laughs> I don't know when the last time I did painting was, but it was it was going to be what it was. And I think that's kind of a lovely thing to to try and cur- encourage in people. And um, you but you didn't kind of follow that necessarily in, in college. You, you studied literature. Was it English and R- Russian literature? Like how? Did- <laughs> <laughs> English and Russian literature. I have a, de- a college degree in reading. <laughs> <laughs> what led you to that? Uh, really not having any other idea. <laughs> I love that. Um, Russian literature really was more of a on-the-spot sort of decision in that I really found the class, the original classes that I took uh, quite by accident in that I dropped something midterm and you could pick up a two-credit Russian literature class uh, in the middle of the term. And, and I felt like, well, if I was dropping a three credit course, at least I could make up two of those credits half term by reading Crime and Punishment <laughs> and, and then fell in love with Dostoevsky and really kind of all Russian literature at that point in my life. I found it to be very dark and soulful and everything that my little college heart needed and <laughs> so, ended up just taking more and more and more and came time. Interestingly enough, it came time to declare a formal minor and I had enough credits in art, art history, really. Um, and, and Russian literature, but thought Russian literature was more impressive somehow. <laughs> it, well, it is impressive, but it was, um, did you, did you speak Russian? No, I did oh, it in English okay. translation. Wow. Okay. Okay. But fascinating. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, a rich culture, right? Like yeah, lots, and I lots loved of it. I studied Tolstoy and Gogol and Lermontov and Chekhov, and you know, it was just phenomenal. Have you? Just curious. Have you? Have you had the opportunity to to travel to Russia and 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 see no, it as a country no, I've never I been to? I've traveled extensively. I've traveled yeah. extensively, but no, I have not traveled to Russia. And right now, after yeah. um, the the attack on Ukraine, I I would not. It's not high up on the list, but I remember yeah, my not, not, not right now. Yeah, my my uncle many many years ago, and my, my cousin maybe twenty odd years ago went and just were fascinated by it and, and told such amazing stories. But I think it was in college that you kind of got you were working the college newspaper and you kind of got into design or layout. You were kind of laying out the paper. Yeah, that kind of was layout a, and picked up and designed and fell madly in love with it and. That experience really changed my life. I wouldn't have even known that that was a discipline to partake. And so that experience really led me to my first 
paid position in the workforce. That was where I got my first job doing basic layout and, and paste up for a cable magazine. And uh, a baby designer was, a baby professional designer was born. <laughs> but, and it is fascinating how I think, you know, like you look at that path, right? It's clearly like non-linear, right? You know, obviously, you know, some innate interest, but then you were studying literature and then this opportunity in, and even the college newspaper, maybe as someone studying literature, you kind of go, well, maybe, maybe would you have been writing? But no, you just found this design layout. What was it about that that just fascinated? Was it the, yeah, what was it that fascinated you about the design? I think it was a combination of, of words and visuals and yeah. create these, these stories with type photography and illustration and games you know we had a little crossword page and so forth yeah. so i think there were a lot of a lot of components a lot of ingredients that really made it something that felt inevitable for me okay yeah yeah i i, I love that the um the, just the different elements and you know because because it's not just one one piece right it's all the different pieces and like even the, the typography and i have to ask so you you had your first job um, using that skill set, but you, but you did have a job as a, as a marketing director and as somebody in marketing, um, I did read that you 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 hated it <laughs> or didn't love it. Maybe hate's a strong word. <laughs> I didn't hate it because it was marketing. I hated <laughs> okay, okay. It because I had a very a very particular kind of boss that oh. I didn't enjoy working with. He wasn't. He wasn't cruel or abusive. He just wasn't somebody that I was able to learn from. Right. And I also didn't particularly like real estate. And so and this was in the 80s in New York City. So real estate was a very big deal. I mean, it still is, but it yeah. was really having a moment. And so I was paid for, for the t at the time and for the position, a good amount of money. And needed a car to drive around to different sites outside of Manhattan. Uh, but I just didn't like it. I didn't like the work. And it was really the, the first time that I took something really just for the money, even though I thought the title would also be something beneficial to me. Yeah. I was really, it was really a response to my working at Cableview and feeling so inferior to so many people I worked with there that this felt like a noble way out. Like I was taking another job and would have, would extract myself from the day-to-day -day feelings of competitiveness and the company politics and feeling on a very regular basis that I just wasn't as good as the people that I was working with. And is that, is that because they were like, they had different qualifications and they felt they were more qualified or they just gave you the sense that, you know, I don't know, your route into this wasn't as valid as theirs. I'm just fascinated by it. Cause I think that's, you know, such a. Well, when I got there, when I initially got there in the summer of 1983, it was mostly some wonderful, wonderfully welcoming designers and a couple of wonderful editorial folks. And I loved that initial experience. It was terrific. And then there was a woman that joined 
Uh, I've written about this in, I think, which book did I write about it in? Um, Self-Portrait as Your Trader. Uh, there was a woman that joined and her name was Penelope. And Penelope was very haughty and I imagine very Ivy League and I was yeah. very school and uh, she didn't like me. <laughs> and so it made it really difficult. I, I this That camaraderie that we had was just not the same and I retreated I retreated oh. from it it's phenomenal how a person <laughs> can have such an impact on not like clearly other people but like culture of an organization and like oh absolutely absolutely I there is not one scintilla of doubt that Penelope has never thought about me again yeah, never yeah never yeah. once if you told her my name, she'd be like, who, what would not even, I, I'm not even a blip in the trajectory of her life story. But for me, it was this monumental occurrence that made me feel so small. And it wasn't her fault per se. Yeah. She had no, um, there was, there was no right that I had to make her like me or to have her like me. Mm -hmm. uh, she wasn't abusive to me or discriminatory. She just didn't like me. Yeah. And I, that just triggered so much of my own self-loathing that I was trying to keep at bay that it became intolerable. For right. Me. And, and that was really the reason it wasn't her fault per se. She just ignited what was already there and, and it just felt unbearable. Wow. And, and I know because, you know, I, again, I've, I've read that, you know, you, there was a period of your childhood that was very, very difficult. So obviously that was that was part of that you were trying to yeah, get a, maybe definitely. not bring forward. And, yeah, and then I moved to this marketing job and had a really fancy title and was making, I don't know, maybe $10,000 a year more money, which at the time was a lot, yeah. especially in 1983. Um, but hated hated it every single day. Every single day. I oh, remember God. being so desperate that I I started to believe in affirmations that if I said something enough times to myself that maybe I would begin to believe it. And so literally I would drive to work saying, I love my job. I love <laughs> my job. I love my job. And 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 it took me 45 minutes to get there. And I would do this every day. Oh no. And uh, yeah, that's how terrible it was for me. Oh God, that that is awful. Because there, there's nothing worse than than that, like waking up in the morning going, I don't, I don't love my job. And so what was the trigger that made you leave? Like what point you go, right, actually, I don't love my job. <laughs> um, desperation. I basically asked them to fire me. And this way I would collect unemployment and I would try to get some other gig in the meantime. And I would grip and save and figure it out. And they did, they did. I think, you know, I did good work and I think they liked me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just hated what I was doing. And so they did, they let me collect unemployment. And in that time, I bought a secondhand drafting table and started doing some freelance design work. And then through other friends, got another job working at a rock magazine and did that for several years. My, my 20s were really, uh, and I've said this before, but 
bears saying again, we're really a, a decade of experiments in rejection and humiliation and shame, <laughs> <laughs> failure, rejection. It was not an easy decade. But I think I did, I did really get a very like, now kind of perspective on that, that like it's it's almost a trial run. I, I maybe got it wrong. That was the twenties. You said as a trial run for adulthood, almost like you were you have to figure those things out because like when yeah, else are you going to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think you do, and some people figure it out faster, and yeah, perhaps they've had a better parenting experience or a better upbringing or easier upbringing. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. It's easier for them to make their way into the world. But for me, it was really challenging. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm late 40s. I'm still figuring figuring, <laughs> figuring out what I want to do when I grow up. So I, no. I, I think that's okay. And so you went, was the, the, the magazine, was that like a ton of fun? Like, was that just incredible? Because it sounds like incredible fun to be working for that kind of, you know, magazine. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think at the time I was still trying to figure myself out. Um, it was a lot of fun, though. I was working with people I really liked, um, who really liked me, some of them. Yeah. <laughs> and and that was, um, that was really fun. And it did, I was making a lot less money than I was making well, in marketing real estate. That was yeah. hard. But at that point, I had also already started freelancing. Yeah. And so that was able to add my income to to some degree to allow me to be able to still pay my rent. It's it's interesting, sorry, that you you, you talk about that kind of the moves for salary and, and that kind of thing. I was I was talking to somebody um, else for the, for the podcast and they said like one of the pieces of advice they give people, and again, where possible as a caveat they had, you know, trying to not move for money in your career and look at your career more as a long, as in the longer term trajectory where you can. And it's not to have like this mm-hmm. grand 20 or 30 year plan, but but sometimes, you know, this person's view was that you you can be three years in an organization and then, you know, get picked up real quickly by somebody else and end up in really bad place. But they're offering you more money, maybe more benefits. And then it can be hard to leave because you're kind of almost right. sucked in and locked yeah. in. So like it's it's just interesting kind of uh, not, not fully similar, but like just an interesting parallel there. And so the Hot 97, would that led you to Sterling Brands in 95? Oh, no, no, no. More that, between from, that. From Rockville, yeah, there were, there were many years in between. <laughs> uh, Rockville led me to starting my own little company with a friend that worked at Rockville, and I did that for about four years, and then left, um, and then got a job at company, a branding consultancy, um, called oh no i'm sorry I'm, there's, a, there's a step in there mm-hmm. i got a job another design job at another design firm called frank rickett's ball kite and i did that for i think two years and then went to and and then when i was at when i was at uh frank rickett's ball kind i was a project manager not oh wow a designer I, they wouldn't hire me as a designer it was one of the hottest design firms in the world and they were willing to give me a shot as a project manager, but my work wasn't good enough. And and I would say that empirically, that wasn't just them judging my work. It was not good enough work there. Uh, but I learned a lot, but it wasn't, it was, that wasn't a great experience. Um, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then went to, then ended up leaving just because I, it, they hated me there. The, the boss, the head guy didn't like me. 
And I, and I always tell people, never go to work for somebody that doesn't like you because it's yeah. not ever going to change. It's never going to work, yeah. Um, and, and so then really in a moment of desperation, answered a cold call for a sales job at a branding consultancy. I didn't even know what a branding consultancy was and ended up getting that job. They hired me. And, and that was a real long shot. Even the headhunter was like, oh, I don't know about this, but you know, let's, let's throw you in, let's throw your hat into the ring and see what and happens. They hired me. And they hired me. And that was really, this was in the mid early to mid nineties. And so, but 10, 11 years after I graduated college and that turned out to be quite serendipitous in that, you know, who knew that I had these nascent skills for branding. And yeah. then I was almost right out of the bat, a very good salesperson and was able to bring in a lot of business. And the company imploded because they were merging with Interbrand and it was a lot of okay. political strife, but ultimately parlayed that success into my getting my job at Sterling in 1995. So at that point, a full 13 years yeah. after I graduated. I mean, incredible. And did you enjoy the... The sales stuff, like actually kind of, was it because you you knew and you loved the branding and that you were able to kind of then passionately kind of sell that and maybe selling is the wrong word, but. Well, no, selling was is the right word. <laughs> but I love the products is that it's that because I think I had been so exposed to so many brands growing up in my dad's pharmacy, mm. I had, and because I had always projected so much power into those brands. You know, this brand could make me feel prettier and these barrettes could make me feel happier. And there was so many things that I used brands to do for myself that I understood this sort of psychological imperative that these objects held and was able to talk about that ability in, in a meaningful and, and very, I think, at the time, compelling manner and became very, very good at something I didn't even know I had a talent for. Yeah, I, I was going to say co- convincing. You said compelling, but that kind of struck me. It probably was quite just convincing and, you know, that you knew and you had this kind of insight. And and in certainly you got to work on some incredible brands, you know, some really, yeah. and when I say incredible, like big, you know, big name brands. Yes, and, and many of the most respected brands in the world. Yeah, yeah. it was incredible. It was an incredible run. I was there for 20 years and um, really had the time of my life. Yeah. And do you look back, like when you look back at some of the work you did, so like, you know, there's like, I, sorry, I did read that you said you walk into a store and you reckon that 25% of the products you had worked on in some way, but like Hagendas, Hershey. Maybe more. Maybe more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Burger King, Tropicana, like, I mean, some really, you know, iconic and I'm writing like, or correct me if I'm wrong, the Tropicana would have been the very iconic orange with straw orange, in it. Yeah. 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 I yeah. mean, incredible, which they went back to. Yes. In yeah. 1999 or 2000 or something like that. Yeah. 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 Incredible. So when you look back at some of those, you know, do you, do you look back with, with immense pride on that work and kind of seeing it still, some of it's still around? Oh yeah, quite a lot of it is still around. And and certainly though certain brands have redesigned and and quite a lot of them have redesigned, I can still see some of the foundations of of what I worked on intact in some way. And certainly 
a lot of the positioning work um, that really fundamentally changed the direction of a lot of the brands that I worked on. I not only worked on the redesign of, of packaging, but also a lot of repositioning. And so that that's work also that I feel very proud of. I still feel proud. There are a couple of brands and, and a couple of categories that I worked in that looking back, I wish I hadn't, you know, I've worked on a lot of in the, 90s i think and maybe in the, even into the early 2000s i worked on a lot of cigarette packaging you know i was a smoker so i didn't have a particular yeah. issue with it but now looking back on it i wish that i hadn't yeah um but i also was a partner in a firm that employed at one point up to 150 people and needed to make sure we did that without having to you know sell the clothes off our backs which you know, when we didn't have enough payroll, we would have to contribute our own money to make sure we made payroll. So this was something that uh, I tried to avoid at all costs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, well, it is, and it's a very difficult, you know, it's a difficult balance to, to, to make. And, you know, I think, um, as you say, you look back and, you know, in the time it was the right thing to do and, you know, have your time again, maybe, maybe a different approach. I did read again that you, on the Burger King, design am i right in saying that you were you, there was a nickname like people some people didn't like it and people had a nickname for you around that i, I did read somewhere oh, she, devil. she devil who called you that <laughs> I can't, who well, said that i'm not gonna out them because they're <laughs> my friends now and they've apologized and i think he meant it a little bit more tongue-in-cheek than people actually <laughs> understood um, but it's all there on the internet. It's easy to find, but he's actually a dear friend. And the founder of that website, Speak Up, is Armin Vitt, who now owns and runs Brand New. And he's family at this point. I'm the <laughs> godmother to his eldest child. Stop. So it's, yeah, yeah. That, that, that was, while it was a really formative moment in my life and a really defining moment in a lot of ways, a real line in the sand. I mean, this is almost 20 years ago at this point. Um, but I would say that since that time, that experience fundamentally transformed the trajectory of my career in the most positive way. What was it about the Burger King thing that got, people so riled up or tricky them so well, it was a, it was a confluence of things it was sort of a perfect storm of, of connections uh the burger king logo was launched i think it was either 1999 or 2000 and i had been part of uh, a subgroup within the aiga the american institute of graphic arts and it was called the center for brand experience and I had joined that when I was looking to expand my community and, and wanted to try and reconnect with non-brand oriented design work. Right. And I joined the brand the Center for Brand Experience and I really loved it and felt very self-actualized in a sort of Maslow-Newton way of thinking about it. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. And then when it came time to renew my board term, I had to reapply for the position and was rejected after having put my heart and soul into this little organization, this little subgroup within yeah. this large organization for, I think it was about two years or so. And I was really, really hurt by it. And 
as a bit of a consolation prize worth buffet, the then executive director of the AIGA invited me to be a judge in that AIGA's, in the upcoming AIGA annual competition, which at the time was really one of the most prestigious design competitions around. And I said, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. I was very honored to do that. At the very same time the annual came out in 2003, Gordon Kay, who was the publisher and still is the publisher of Graphic Design USA, now known as GDUSA, published an email that I sent him congratulating him for what was a, a fairly significant anniversary. I think it was 30 years in the business. And I said very positive things, which I meant. And I didn't know this at the time, but Gordon published my email in the letters to the editor section of an issue that had come out, I think in March of 2003. So Felix Sockwell, one, an illustrator who was writing for Speak Up, saw both my Burger King credentials in that year's annual that had just yeah. come out and the letter to the editor in Graphic Design USA and essentially decided that I was a hack. Oh. And that I didn't deserve the honor of being an AIA, an AIGA judge, thought my work was deplorable as represented by the Burger King logo and whatever else was in the annual that was the definition of my credentials, my worthiness of, yeah. of being in the, in the annual as a judge and wrote an open letter to the AIGA on the Speak Up blog, accusing them of working with corporate clowns and people that were looking to take advantage of their involvement and called me to task. And then there was the, it was the early 2000s, then the pylon of comments, which included my being called a Ashita. Wow, that's phenomenal. And was it, so, so was it like it wasn't, what you were doing wasn't pure enough? Like that was just, it was commercial and that was just, that wasn't okay. Was that kind of the... It was, well, they thought it was bad design. First and <laughs> they thought it was really bad design, really poor design. And uh, just felt that it was terrible, terrible work and embarrassing for AIGA to be part of my credentials. Wow. And the world has only gotten, I, I when I say worse, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it but like it's more toxic now I guess you know that like but it's amazing that's you know as you say nearly 20 years ago and and it was pretty pretty brutal like the online environment is not is yeah. not a safe it, great I, place I, I don't know that that would happen quite in the same way right now maybe it would I mean well if it was on Twitter it would have yeah I was gonna say yeah it definitely would no <laughs> I think so yeah. I think so you then you then had maybe your own moment, maybe was it 10 or 13 years later where you felt actually, I'm not loving this. I'm it's is, was it that it was too, it was too commercial and you weren't kind oh, of the being, work with Sterling. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I started working in Sterling when there were 15 people there in 1995. It was very scrappy. And I first joined as a salesperson from the Schechter Group slash Interbrand Merge. And I was in my 30s, a young woman who was sort of trying to find her way in the world. I was 
um, living hand to mouth. You know, was, I yeah. did I wouldn't quite say dirt poor, but pretty close. And um, I it ran its course. You know, yeah. I, I yeah. Went, you know over the years, you know, we went to five offices, 150 people, three divisions, um, and then you know one of the most amazing things in the world happened, which was we were able to sell our company to Omnicom. So it gave me a real financial foundation in which to reconsider what my opportunities were. And I ended up staying for another eight years after the acquisition because I loved Mm. it that much still. But 20 years later, I'm in my mid to late fifties and suddenly I'm looking at probably the last third of my life, if I'm lucky, right? Yeah, Two yeah. things like gone by and I want to do more. And I had been feeling that way for a long time and had felt a real fear at making any kind of significant change that would create any kind of vulnerabilities or unknowns or uncertainties. And um, finally, finally, finally uh, was able to, take that step into a faith of what could happen next. What was the change that allowed you to take that, like at that moment? I mean, I know we read that you were maybe offered, to, you were offered to be CEO, it took you four months to decide. And you've, there was a great line where if something takes you four months to decide, it's probably not the right thing. But but yeah. what was it that changed, you know, in your life or, you know, around you that, that made you feel in in 20, 2016, I'm right saying that, that that this is the time I'm, I'm good. I'm good to leave. My former partner, when I had my own little agency back in the eighties, when I left that agency, he kept it and he ended up selling it to, I think, Interpublic. So when it came time for me to, to sell my company as, as we were, it was after the acquisition, but I was still very much full time and starting to think about it. He, he gave me some really good advice and he said, don't leave cold Turkey because it's quite a different lifestyle and that might be really hard. He, he had felt that it was challenging for him. And so I, I really listened to him and decided to go down three days a week and then to one day a week. I probably could have just left after the three days a week because <laughs> the one day a week was just like hanging on by a thread and, and kind of unnecessary. But um it was just a matter of, of sort of easing myself out and easing myself into a new life that was, um, I think it, it helped with the fear of the unknown. I can almost have like a, a Venn diagram of my life, you know, old life, new life intertwined, and then sort of using that middle part where they're overlapping to transition into, into other circle. Yeah. I love that. And of course, you had the, you started the radio show, turned into, you know, the podcast. So was that part of then the new, you know, new life you were realizing this was? No, I mean, it was just really a matter of having more time to do the things that I was doing, had started doing while I was at Sterling, the podcast and running my grad program at School of Visual Arts. But it also gave me more time to start doing a lot more of the things that I wanted to do, like illustration and more writing and things like that. Yeah. And the, to touch on the podcast, obviously it's a huge success, successful. It's one of the, you know, one of the, one of the first, I guess, in the sense of like, you know, yeah, yeah, what, absolutely. It it wasn't it's yeah. almost 18 years. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, what's that journey been like? I mean, for you, obviously you're an incredible 
incredible host. You know, what are the things you learned kind of through the last 18 years to that that have that you've changed in how you how you kind of approach the podcast? It's really funny. I was I was having a conversation with my producer, Curtis Fox, and he started with me in 2009. So it's been a long time. And it was actually not a conversation just between the two of us. He was having a, we were having a conversation with someone else. And he was talking about how he edited. And one of my guests was asking him about the technology that he used to edit. And they asked about the, the how elaborate it was to edit. And he said, well, it used to be a lot harder, but Debbie's gotten a lot better. And I was like, what? <laughs> He said he used to have to kind of edit the storyline, the narrative arc, as much as the ums and the pauses and the redos. But he said she's become so much better an interviewer that it, it's actually a lot easier now. And that made, you know, Curtis is a man of very few words. He's not a big complimenter. Um, he's not a big feedback giver. Right. In fact. So when he said that, it wasn't to me, but it was about me and I heard it. So that sort of made me feel very, very good that, that he, the person who's listened to every single interview that I've done while I'm doing it. And then uh, after over and over again, as he's editing um, felt this way, made me feel like I had sort of accomplished something grand. Um, but the, the one thing that I can tell you is that no matter how successful and accomplished and famous somebody might be, they're still yearning to be better and to make more and to continue to be able to express themselves creatively in a meaningful and powerful way. Yeah. Nobody is just like, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm good, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm all that and then some, let's celebrate. Uh, people are very... Um, fragile and delicate beings and very vulnerable and very, very, mostly everyone I've spoken to very impacted by the world around them. And so I think that, you know, we all want meaning, we all want purpose. And even when we find it, we're constantly refining it, not refining it, but refining what we find. Yeah. And there is, actually something really beautiful about that and, just, and there's also no magic bullet you know a lot of people are looking for like if this happens then i'm set or if i get this i'll be happy or if i do this then my life will be complete and the fact is that that never happens that we're always looking for uh, a way to recreate our best moments and that yeah because and it's that's incredibly I think you can all, like some of it can seem like chasing. Like, are we always chasing something that's that's better? But it's I love that like kind of the recreating those moments and just finding that yeah. happy. And it's all phases, isn't it? I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Absolutely. You've written is it six books? Am I right? Six. Seven. Or are we on seven? This is seven. seven. And I, I why matter? Why does my matters is my seven? Here we go, and it it arrives. Yeah. Thank you. It's absolute. I mean, it's this is obviously bad for podcasts, but anyone who's seen has this book. It's absolutely stunning. And what I love about the book um, is, well, it's just it's the curiosity of the stories, and it's also just the kind of 
a the questions you asked, but also just kind of the, they're kind of snippets. It, it's snippets of 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 you know these amazing interviews you've had with people, and it's the the I mean all of the book is beautiful. The design of the book, the photography of the book, and I know, um, you poured a lot of you into this book in terms of just you know obviously personally, but also just like investing. You know, I know things like the advance you put all into the book, the photography you weren't able to go out and shoot photos with all the people so you were investing in getting beautiful photos so that they were i guess well represented in in this beautiful book it's absolutely beautiful and i think um you know how did you first of all figure out who were the people you were going to feature in this book because you've interviewed so many people and they aren't they aren't all in the book so how did you create that shortlist i really had several criteria um one was could i edit it in a way that allowed for their story to come forward without including the entire interview. Because yeah. if I did that, I'd only have been able to include like 10 interviews. So I needed it to be something that I could edit in a way that still felt very authentic and, and really hold the integrity of the interview. Um, the second was, can I get a wonderful photo? I was doing this during the pandemic. And so doing a photo shoot as I originally intended was not possible. What else? Editing, photograph. I wanted a real range of people. And yeah. and that was something that was um, super important to me. So that, those were some of the criteria. I mean, that and that comes across, I think the range of people in it is it is fascinating. And what I, you know, what I'm loving about it is I can, you can, I can kind of dip into it. And I can read like three, almost three of the stories and then come back. And I feel like, I, you know, I'm getting I'm getting a sense, as you say, of 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 the person through through that interview. And like those those pieces to pick out must have also been very difficult. It was a huge time commitment, I'm sure, to to put all this together. I don't know. how I don't know how you how you found that time. It's a lot of work. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. You make the time, you know, busy is a decision and is, is really the way I feel. I love that. Um, and obviously, sorry, the other the other piece, you, you've mentioned it before, but obviously you are an educator as well. And you've the grad program in, in branding at the New York, am I right? New York School of Visual Art. Uh, just the School of Visual Arts oh, in New York okay. City. In New York City. Okay. <laughs> you can tell I'm not from there. Um, oh, what are you like? What have you been hoping to achieve with that? It's been going for some time now, but what was your goal kind of as you were setting that up? Um, I wanted to transform the way that the world thinks about branding and move it away from being solely used as a capitalist tool to one that can provoke um, democratic and um, diverse change in our society. Wow. Okay. That's, that, that's a lot. And when you say branding moving it away is a kind of capitalist thing is do you mean you just want people to stop thinking about branding as being solely owned by corporations and and no i mean humans have been branding since the beginning of, of modern times and we have um been able to use the uh codification of symbols uh to create tribes for ten thousand years now there's really no difference in the way that we construct a tribe around a religion to a tribe around a sneaker, to a tribe around the movement. And the corporation has appropriated that ability in the way that they make and market products. But that behavior was something that we've used 
for non-profit purposes um, for, for millennia. And so this is something that I believe is proof that branding can be used for non-financial needs to make and position and design the kind of world we all want to live in. Is it by giving it, giving it back and like the ownership of it not being held with people who can afford it, right? Because a lot of, you know, would that be fair? Like a lot, you talk about nonprofits, a lot of nonprofits, I've worked in nonprofits, you know, are like, well, we can't afford that. So we go and we do, you know, we use the web and use like create a free logo for our nonprofit. And it's not telling the story, you know, or it's, there, it's the same well, as every I'm not other. I'm really talking about nonprofits in like, like NGOs and okay. corporate nonprofits. I'm talking about using identities to signify beliefs and affiliations that have no financial uh, reason for being. They're movements, they're, they're um, movements in the world that can persuade people to reconsider how they behave in a way that might be more just. And this could also be used for evil, let's, let's be honest. But yeah, I'm yes. advocating for the use of it as a tool to bring people together and lift people up as opposed to push people down. But branding can be used to push people down. It could be used to persuade people to buy things, but it could also educate and teach people how to live in a more just and equitable manner. And that's really what I am hoping to be able to imbue in my students, impart to my students. That must be very enlightening for for them i'm sure like they're coming in they, they have some idea of what they're they're coming in for but maybe not fully that that's kind of your your view it must be quite rewarding then to see your students kind of take this and and then bring it out to the world have you seen kind of some of the graduates out in the world doing doing this work oh my god yeah our students are doing remarkable remarkable things and i believe that our students are really changing the discipline in real life in real time that's incredible that, that's such yeah, a we have students working you know at some of the biggest corporations in the world bringing these uh tenants to what we do as well as working for some of the biggest nonprofits, some of the biggest institutions um it's it's remarkable in the 13 years since i've been doing this to see what they've accomplished out in the world that's that's an incredible, incredible thing to to have and to see and and to take what you've your journey and and you know your I guess your story and and share that with them. You know, we're we're coming at, at the end of of time, Debbie. But like one of the things as I've kind of just read and and listened to to you before meeting you is just this, I guess maybe impression that I'm getting for for where you're at. Now, you, you just seem that you're doing all the like a lot of things you love. So that kind of Venn Dam diagram moving into the the new world that you're, you're in, incredibly happy, creating lovely work that you really enjoy. I mean, educating and then sharing stories in, in the world. You, you know, it must be it must feel wonderful. There are days that it does. And then there are <laughs> days like everybody else. And I'm like, I don't want to be me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of hearing myself talk. I'm tired of everything. You know, I have moments of real despair, but I also have moments of tremendous gratitude. You've called the um, called your book uh, a love letter to creativity. Did I get that right? I saw that in the yeah, opening. It's, ah, yeah. I mean, and it absolutely is. And you know, I think, as I said, for me, I think reading reading this while it's 
it's about design, it's about creativity, but it's about people and it's about stories and it's about, you know, the lives that, that you know, of the people you've interacted with through through the podcast. So it's it's absolutely fascinating and it's been a, a real pleasure to to meet you and spend time with you. Thank you so much for for giving up your time, Debbie. I really appreciate it. Oh, Connor, it has been an absolute delight to talk with you. Um you're a dreamboat. You're you're just wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Debbie was so gracious and generous with her time and giving us an insight into her career journey, her work and perspective on design and branding in this world. Debbie's new book, Why Design Matters, which wonderfully represents her body of work through her podcasts. And she describes us in the introduction as a love letter to creativity, a testament to the power of curiosity. And it's a truly wonderful book. So if you love creativity in any way, are curious about people who are creative, you will love the book Why Design Matters. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy this episode, please do share and add comments with your feedback. You can get in touch and find all previous episodes on That's What I Call Marketing.com. Follow us on Instagram on That's What I Call Marketing and on Twitter at That's underscore Marketing. So for me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, Thanks for listening. Take care.